and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey, my superstars. How are you all this week? Thank you for joining us for another episode of Challenges That Change Us. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. So I may have got completely carried away with challenges that change us and I've recorded so many episodes that we may have to consider going to twice a week. My editor, my beautiful editor, Sam, had to remind me that I have plenty in the bank and I don't need to keep recording. But do you know why I do? Because every time you send me a message or a DM or you give me some feedback about it, I get so excited and so passionate about sharing these human stories of resilience, of struggle, of how to navigate challenges that I just go and invite five more people on the show. So yes, your messages and DMs do mean the world to me. Just last week, a woman reached out to say the action she had taken off listening to the podcast. And I got so teary, just even knowing that someone has the courage to do something that they didn't have before they listened. So keep reaching out to me, keep DMing. I will always love to hear from every single one of you. And remember to join us in our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, because that is where we all hang out. And I absolutely loved hearing about your childhood books. My favorite was Who Sank the Boat? Do you remember that one? It's still at my mum's house and my girls love it just as much as I did when I was growing up. Today, I want to introduce you to the most amazing, incredible, resilient, humble man, Matt Dunn. He's the Professor of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology Research at the University of Newcastle and the Deputy Director of Precision Medical Research Program at the Hunter Medical Research Institute. Professor Dunn leads the Cancer Signaling Research Group, which focuses on childhood, adolescence, brain cancer, and acute leukemia research. In his career, he has been decorated by 33 national and international awards for his pediatric cancer research. Notably, in 2019, he was named the New South Wales Premier's Outstanding Cancer Research Fellow, and in 2020, he received the Australian Institute of Policy and Science Young Tor Poppy Award. What you are not going to believe, and what will break your heart today, is that Matt and his wife, Phoebe, both worked in the field of paediatrics and cancer and they lost their beautiful little daughter Josie when she was only four to brain cancer. To think that Matt is still working in the industry to help other families out there is something I don't even have words for. There are so many moments in this interview where you will hear my heart break. But on the same note, I'm so bloody proud of what he is doing It is people like Matt that change the course of people's lives for generations to come. Today, more than 140 children worldwide have received the therapies that he discovered for DIPG in his lab. As you listen to this interview, please take care of yourself. If today's episode doesn't feel right for you, give yourself permission to skip it and we will be waiting here for you next Monday. Remember, you are never alone and if you ever need someone to talk to, Lifeline is just a call away on 13, 11, 14. Let me introduce you to this incredible human, researcher, dad and husband, Matt Dunn. Hi, Matt. Thank you for coming on Challenges That Change Us today. It's so good to have you here. Thanks, Ali. Uh, Thanks for finally arranging a time that I can be with you today. Yeah, and it's actually a shout out to James, one of our audience. He actually put us in touch and it's taken us a little while to get here, but we are here now. And I'll echo your shout out to James. He's a, he's a great man and he does great things for our community and for our charity. Yeah, and I love to start every episode with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular? I had to think about this a fair bit and and was helped in some way, but I think probably the animal that best describes me is an elephant. Although I'm red, I soon will be (laughs) grey. Apparently, uh, they're very intelligent, uh, very loyal, 
organized, determined, family orientated, and thick skinned. And I think when you have red hair and you've been through what I've been through, without having such thick skin, I don't think I would be sitting here today with you. No, definitely not. Definitely not. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this interview since the first time we made contact. And I just thought, oh, it's a huge, huge story. And you're doing incredible things around the world. And I'm really excited to open that up to our audience so that we can also share, share the information that you guys are doing now about the foundation and everything. So let's dive straight in, I reckon. Let's go into perhaps take us right back to maybe when you finished year 10, because you joined the army after you finished, didn't you? Uh, The Navy, actually. Yeah. And when I was younger, I thought I'd be an Olympic swimmer. So I was one of those kids that did the morning afternoon training before and after school. And I was getting ready for the last possible age nationals, which were to be in Adelaide. And I'd trained the house down all summer. Things were going well. I'd qualified. And then I broke my wrist um, before training, shoulder charged, not on purpose, but swimmers are generally uh, pretty uncoordinated. A really great butterflyer in our squad. I'm not sure if I should say her name. Shout out to Leah Lipke if she's still around. <laughs> we were playing that ball and, and she shoulder charged me and she was a fantastic swimmer and, and she was probably better built than I was and I fell over and landed on my wrist and I broke my scaphoid and it was about three weeks away from nationals and effectively ended that opportunity to go to, to nationals and then you know, this is in 1995 and, and in 1996, the Atlanta Olympics were on. So that was the, the big goal to try and qualify, of course. I still had a long way to go at that stage, but yeah, I broke my scaphoid and, and then, you know, kind of lost the reason why I was doing everything, you know, at high school, I didn't really know why I was studying. And so probably my motivations for the effort necessary to do well, what weren't there, that, you know, probably my efforts were we're more focused on sport and being a professor of biomedical sciences these days, to me, that's kind of crazy. I was just thinking, as you were saying, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sure. wait until we get to like your degrees because I'm like, how did you even get there? But there's so much story between. There sure is. But yeah, I got my report card and my wonderful stepfather who used to take me in the mornings, most mornings, sometimes I'd ride my bike in Canberra, was, would sit out in the car in the morning uh, from five o'clock till 7.30 and, and, and read and wait. And he I had received my report card and was uh, you know he had generally asked what had been going on and I literally hadn't been doing any work and so you know we'd had a few discussions in the lead up to that day about me becoming more independent so I took that as my opportunity to become more independent and 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 that that day in fact my stepfather Bob went to work and I didn't go to school and it's the only day I've ever wagged in my life and I packed up the things that I had and I, I didn't have anything, really, no money. And I went into the city of Canberra and, and wondered what I was going to do with my life. And I happened to walk past Defence Force Recruiting and I thought, this is my go. And Defence Force Recruiting happened to be in my stepfather's building. So he was the head of the Australian International Development Assistance Bureau, which is called AusAid these days. So he's a diplomat. And Defence Force Recruiting is in the ground floor of his building and he would have been at the top. And I walked in and said to the, to the I don't know who he was, the leading seaman or whomever it was on the desk that I'd always wanted to join the Navy. And he took me into an office, showed me some brochures and said, yep, yeah, let's send you off for some testing. I went home that day with the paperwork. And of course, I was only just turned 17 and I couldn't sign any. The, the paperwork wasn't legal. And so I told mum about my plan and she of course, was not happy, but she made me sign, well, not necessarily sign, but but promise that I would complete my high schooling in the military when I was there, and I promised her that I would do that. And it took me a little time whilst I was in the Navy to get there, but I, I absolutely did. And then I suppose that's where I really fell in love with science and problem solving and and being able to answer questions and, and really the ability to learn how to ask the right questions, the important questions, the, the questions that need answering. So that's how I got into the Navy. And I, and I anticipated it to take a long time, but back then it didn't. It took literally two weeks from that moment I walked into the door and I was out of high school and I was in Victoria at recruit school as a 17-year-old. Not the youngest in my in my division, but one of the youngest. And yeah, it just just started from there. And how long were you with the Navy for? I joined on the 3rd of July, 1995, and I got out of the, on the 4th of the 4th, 04. So yeah, nearly nine years, eight and three quarter years. Yeah. And when you look back through that experience, what are some of your takeaways from it? So many. I kind of always felt that I wanted to do something to help people in kind of a health perspective, but I didn't really know what that was. I also at some stages thought I, I wanted to be a pilot. But I suppose what the military taught me was loyalty, dedication, honesty, 
and camaraderie. You know, I, I spent six years at sea on a couple of different Australian submarines when we were commissioning the Collins class submarine squadron. Actually, I was the youngest sailor on board HMAS Farncombe when it commissioned in 1998, and I was very fortunate and honoured to have the opportunity to cut the cake at the commissioning ceremony with the captain's mum. Uh, usually it's with the captain's wife, but this this commander, who is an amazing man, wasn't married at that stage, and I can understand why. It's, it's very difficult to maintain great relationships when you're constantly out at sea. It's a challenging endeavour to have a, a functional family and, and to be defending your country uh, and being so isolated. So I take my hat off to all of those submariners and servicemen that continue to do that. And some of it, my best friends remain doing that. And I suppose the importance of that is that, you know, I got to do so many amazing things with so many different people. And those opportunities would never have come if I'd just finished high school and, and then and gone off to university or, or gotten a job. Those really unique opportunities, uh, you know, you only get to experience when you put yourself out there and really do something different and something very privileged, I suppose. But, you know, those experiences are amazing. Some of the, the stories that I have from those six years at sea on, on different submarines, HMAS Markham and HMAS Deshano. You know, I also did about 18 months on the surface fleet on, on a couple of ships, HMAS Torrens and HMAS Perth. So it was an amazing experience. But the whole time doing it, I knew that wasn't my place in the world. It was fun during the, the times that we did it, and it was also very challenging. I remember being at sea on, on HMAS Farncombe, and I think I'm, I'm probably 20 years old now, and I've been on board for a couple of years, and you very quickly rise to, through the ranks in a submarine squadron, particularly if you stay in the same submarine, because you learn everything and you know everything, and you're a really vital part of that team, and it's only a small team, and every member of the team has to be able to do everybody else's jobs just in case people go down. And I remember sitting there and we were off Rottnest Island, charging our batteries at periscope depth, so not on the surface, but not deep, but with the periscopes up and, and, and sucking in air through a huge pipe so we can run our diesel generators and, and create electricity to charge the batteries, sitting there thinking, it's eight o'clock on a Saturday night. And I'm sitting here trapped in this absolutely no way I can get off this submarine. And I've got two more weeks of this before I get back, thinking, wow, this is just really challenging. And I kind of made up my mind. That year, which is probably the last year at sea in that batch, did three years in a row on HMAS Farncombe, that I needed to do what I said I would do, and that was to go back to school and do my high school certificate. And so a wonderful man who's still in the military and is actually, I think he's in Manila right now on one of the surface ships, Paul Stewart's his name, and him and I started preparing for high school. On our watches, when, when we weren't busy, you know, we started doing writing and spelling bees and doing some maths together. What a lesson for every parent out there today. I'm just going to take us right back to the beginning of your story, that you were a national swimmer at school and in a 24-hour period you decided you were leaving school and doing something completely different. And for many parents in that moment, I'm not going to speak for yours, but I know as a mum myself, there would be panic. There would be like, but you've got so much potential and it's a broken wrist. And, you know, like I can imagine all the thought processes that would have gone through your parents' minds. So I just want to highlight that first and foremost. Like we don't know what these forks in the roads mean and where they lead us and what opportunities are provided from it. So that's the first thing I wanted to highlight from what you said. The second thing is, oh, my God, the determination, discipline and drive. Like I can hear that already and I know that's going to be something that flows throughout this whole conversation. But I'm just sitting there thinking, wow, you are one of the most tenacious and determined people I've met within the first 15 minutes of talking to you. Like I can hear it when you set your mind on something. It's like, okay, I'm going to do it. My question to you about that is, when you went back and you decided you were going to do your HSC after such a long break, how was your self-confidence in that space? Oh, look, I, I really struggled, to be honest, particularly at the English part. I, I'd never really been good at English and was the thing I really had to work on the most. The, the chemistry and the maths was, you know, that was fine. The biology, the biology is always challenging because there's no real answers. I mean, there are answers, but that's a beautiful thing about biology is that you're always learning and asking different questions. English was a real challenge and that was a real challenge throughout high school. And I suppose possibly some of the reasons why I focused on sport was because probably I was poor at English. And my mum explored, you know, I think back then, now we're talking in the 80s, I suppose, I suppose the level of public available tools to investigate learning issues is probably not as, as great or as clear as they are today. And I think I, I think I have a bit of dyslexia and I, I thought maybe the way I've been able to succeed post that is to learn 
how to learn myself, which might not necessarily be the way I was taught to learn uh, in English particularly. And, you know, I've got a son now who's who's going through primary school and the way that they learn things is completely different to what we were taught. And the way they learn today, I think, is is much more clear and logical. You know, the English language is, is really challenging. You know, we have so many words that mean different things and different vowels and different, all those kind of, yeah. all of those kind of patterns, but you can learn them. So they've been broken down by excellent teachers now so that you can pick out those parts where there's a long vowel and, and you know, you can really start to learn and to watch him you know, be able to read, you know, coming into the kindergarten and improving every day. I'm just so thankful for the teachers that he has, but also that education's evolved so much to to cater. And I'm sure he's very much, Georgie, my little son, is very much like me. He's, you know, English isn't doesn't jump out of him as, as something that's really natural. I think my daughter Harriet is, is probably going to be much better, but he's more science, you know, he wants to be paleontologist. I know he's only five, but chem- chemistry, biology, he's so interested in that. The English is a challenge, but he's doing so well already. We'll never know what traits and characteristics of yours lifted up and became predominant because of what you struggled with with English. Like we'll never know that. But sometimes I wonder that some of the best minds I've ever met have been dyslexic or have had trouble with English or can't put two numbers together. And because of that, they've really kind of engulfed the areas that they're good at and just really excelled in that space. And we'll never know. But I was also curious, you used the words, it wasn't my place in the world. You knew that it wasn't your place in the world and that there was something else out there for you. What did you mean by that comment? I met so many great people and, and, and I'm forever thankful for that. My friends in the Navy are still my best friends today, plus a few extra special people that I met at uni. But I never felt like it was my place. I was always being told what to do, being so young and being so junior by other people. And I suppose, I don't know what it is, but I, I kind of, I need to be instructed or I need to be led by people I respect. I, I don't know if it's, you know, my red hair or, or what, but I kind of gravitate to those that I can see have done it before, not those that have just been put in into a situation where they're in leadership positions. And this is not having a go at anyone in particular, but I, I just really struggled to constantly be ordered around. There's not much of an opportunity in the military to deviate from the centre, which is fine, and I understand exactly why. We, you know, it's all about safety, it's all about execution, it's about success, but independent thought isn't really encouraged particularly at the, you know, the junior junior sailor level. And I understand why, and I have no problem with it. That's why I say it wasn't my place in the world. It was a stepping stone and I got my high school certificate and I did what I promised my mum. And then I spent the next year figuring out where I was going to uni and what, was, what the future left. Because, you know, when you're young and you join the military and, you've, you know, you earn money and you pay your rent, in, in many ways you're an instant adult, but you've also got this nest egg that's continually supporting you, rental assistance, great pay, you know, travel, you know, if you, you go home to see your parents twice a year, the, the military pays or, you, you know, if your wife, whatever. Suddenly that was all going to come to an end and I was going to go to uni with no income and no job. And so that was quite scary. And it's very scary for many military people because the military doesn't really help you for the future if you decide to leave because that's not their game. Their game is to keep you in. It takes so much money for them to train you to the level that I was and the skills that I had and all the cool courses that I've done. None of those things are relevant. You know, the fact that I can organize a shooting range (laughs) for 40 sailors to learn how to be marksmen with rifles is completely irrelevant in Australian culture. You know, those kind of skills or to how to, to, to update a paper chart because there's been discovered that there's a, a new reef somewhere and add that to the chart. Those things are not relevant in this world. So you are absolutely completely unprepared for a job. So I knew that, but I always knew that I promised mum that I would go to uni. So it was once I got the high school certificate, it was about figuring out where to come to uni. And my sister Sally was here in Newcastle and my real father, not my stepfather, had bought a hotel in Newcastle called the CBD. And him and, and his great business partner, Nick, had bought it. And, and, you know, they gave me a room upstairs to live at and to work at the pub. So it was kind of a soft landing in many ways, somewhere to live and a part-time job while, while I started to go to uni. And I know, Matt, towards the end of your degree was when you really started to find that passion for research, yeah? Is that, when it, is that sort of when it sparked? Yeah, I think so. I very much enjoyed my 
degree and learning the concepts. And I had a great group of students with me. There was a real core group of people we studied together. You know, we'd often be in the library till midnight or whatever doing assignments. It was really great. My plan was to do undergraduate research and then go and do postgraduate medicine somewhere. But at that same time, I met my wife. Well, she wasn't my wife then. And she was in her third year of medicine. And she was so supportive during that time. You know, once I had the bit between the teeth, I would come into the lab on the weekends before footy on Saturday mornings and she'd come to my PhD office and she would study and I'd be in the lab doing experiments on Saturday morning before footy and then we'd go to footy together. She'd wear her seahorse jumper and I'd play and, you know, that kind of was such a great motivation. We were always working together. She was always studying and I was always working on my honours and PhD and it just made it really easy, right? And I suppose she really became the motivation for me to, to want to be better more than I more than I thought I was and you know she's such an amazing human and she inspires me to be the best person I can every day so that was really cool and so of course great PhD published my PhD by publication rather than writing one of these for those that can't see he's got this massive big book that's like so thicker than any textbook I ever read but I didn't do that so I published five papers during my PhD, so they all were in the literature by the time I'd finished. The next student that's about to submit their, her PhD, Evie Jackson, she will publish by, by publication. All of her work will be published, but she's worked incredibly hard. And, and she, was, she started with me when my daughter Josie was diagnosed. So she worked on DIPG from the same time that I did. And you just mentioned DIPG and Josie, and we haven't even touched on that yet. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what DIPG is and also also share with us a little bit about Josie? Yeah, for sure. So after my PhD, my wife we had finished uni. She, she was a year out, a uh, junior doctor, and she got onto the paediatric program here at the John Hunter Hospital, which was an awesome opportunity. So to do paediatric training as a, special, a specialist. And my plan was to go to the Netherlands and do a postdoc. So you know, once you finish your PhD, you become you have a doctor of philosophy uh, and you go and do a research project where you start to lead research and, and, and things like that. I was keen to go to Utrecht in the Netherlands and Phoebe was keen to come with me. My wife's name's Phoebe, but she got onto the paediatric program just as I was finishing my PhD, which was just before we got married. And it was just such a great opportunity. Serendipitously, a job offer popped up here locally and that was to, to join the cancer program here at the University of Newcastle and Hunter Medical Research Institute to do a specialised technique which is called proteomics which basically means is that you take a cancer cell and you break it open into its individual parts and you start to map together all the differences that are in that cancer cell compared to its adjacent normal cell, whatever's normal, and figure out what those differences are so you can design new therapeutics. And that technique's called proteomics or genomics. And during my PhD, I've basically just done proteomics, you know, really great techniques. So the opportunity to, to be a postdoctoral scientist and, and to do that kind of work came up. And so I interviewed and got the job, which was great. So, meant, you know, we had some money and Phoebe took up the paediatric opportunity, the pediatric training program here at the John Hunter Hospital. You know, that meant that she was doing oncology, you know, respiratory diseases, you know, child health, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, she started to, to do her rotations in pediatric oncology and I was started to research pediatric oncology. My supervisor then was Professor Nikki Verrills and, and she was very encouraging of me to write fellowship applications. So I had a job paid here by the, the institute but when you do that you're actually working for someone so I'm kind of back in the navy now right so I'm doing things that people are telling me to do whereas when you have a fellowship it's choose your own adventure so if you write if you have a scientific idea in cancer of course here now and it's worthy of funding and, and exploring the potential of that idea you can write a fellowship application and I wrote a fellowship application to the Cancer Institute of New South Wales and it got funded and this was you know within four months of starting my postdoc. And so I already started to have this independence again, which is really what I craved, that opportunity to ask questions, to, to be able to fund the work that I was doing. And, you know, when you are the lead investigator on, on a research program, you dictate how much you work. You, you know, if you don't want to work, it's only going to affect you. So that kind of motivation comes back to everything else that I've done to really push hard, work really hard and, and see how, how far I could explore it. And in the, in the next 12 months, you know, I'd gotten a, another three-year fellowship and I was in Denmark learning how to do even better proteomics, which I mentioned before, through the world leaders. Quite a funny story. My first ever grant besides the fellowship was from 
my family in Maitland who'd left money to the HMRI when the auntie of a lady named Alison Gearing had passed away. And my first ever grant was for $6,000 to travel to Denmark and learn how to do protein protein sequencing or proteomics on cancer patients. And, and that this was leukemia patients that had been diagnosed at the MARTA hospital and cared for by the clinicians and the clinical team at the MARTA and had generously donated their leukemia samples at diagnosis or when the disease came back. And I took 12 samples on the plane with me. So these samples are packed in dry ice. And these, I don't know if you've ever seen dry ice, but this is like super cold ice cubes. And I was allowed to take six kilos of dry ice with 12 patient samples. I packed in this huge esky, you know, weighed seven kilos because of the esky. Qantas accepted it. We'd done the paperwork. Did the, you know, 34 hours to, to Copenhagen. And I was the first flight to land on that morning from Heathrow. The connection was from Heathrow. And I'm sitting in the baggage claim with my suitcase waiting for my esky to come and it's not on the plane. And so I wait in the baggage area again for the next plane from Heathrow. Yep, no, not, not on the plane at 12 o'clock. Three o'clock flight comes in, not on the plane. One flight left at nine o'clock. And I've you know, become friends with all the baggage handlers during this whole day and I've been now travelling for 45 hours, not really any sleep. And then last flight comes in. I can still see this uh, wonderful Danish guy on a motorised three-wheel scooter driving with the esky on the back going, I've got your box, I've got your esky. So anyway, so I, I got this and then I had to hire a car and drive an hour and a half to a little tiny city called Udense and I, and I was so worried about these samples being defrosted because it had now been 45, 50 hours since I'd packed them up but it had been snowing because of Denmark. <laughs> so I got to this, my accommodation, which was in the attic, of a, an elderly lady named Christina Jacobson and car surrounded by snow. So I just shoveled snow with my hands on top of the esky until the morning. It's about one o'clock by the time I got up and, and the next minute, next morning I got up. Everything's cold and frozen. So I got the esky, drove in to the petrol station to get some, I still had the hire car to get some breakfast. And in that moment when you're in a foreign country and you have no idea about the food or, or the language, which I didn't, and I'm standing in front of the Bay Marie or the, the hot box of food like we have, you know, with our pies and our, our, our Danishes. And I'm looking at this Danish going, surely they're not called Danishes in Denmark. So, so I had no idea what to call it. So I just pointed at the Danish. And I thought that was quite ironic that I was eating a Danish and then, you know, got in the car, went to the uni, quickly got into the lab, got some more ice ready, unpacked the box. And fortunately, the samples were all still in a tiny amount of dry ice and they hadn't defrosted. And from that sequencing that I learned there, gave me the next six years of funding. Um, so when I came back to Australia, I wrote an equipment grant to get the same sequencing machine I had in Denmark. We got it here. I used that machine. Well, we've used that machine so much uh, over the last 10 years. Wrote another fellowship, wrote another fellowship and, and really kept the journey going until, you know, and, and I just received another fellowship for the next three years, starting 2018. And then at that stage, I had two kids, um, Josie, who was in February 2018, who was two and three quarters, and George, who was one and one month old. And I, I'd been in Canberra in February lobbying to our elected political colleagues about the need and, and the importance of health and medical research funding to, to increase funding to, to the National Health and Medical Research Council. One of my roles throughout those years was as a director of the Australian Society for Medical Research, so really trying to get some funding going because we've not really um, invested in health and medical research here, any new funding for I don't know how long now, it's probably 20 years. And so I was in Canberra and I'd come back and it was a Friday and Josie would come to daycare here at the uni. I really enjoyed those first child opportunities to take her to daycare and to spend that time with her. She only went to daycare three days a week. And so those days I did shorter days and I'd run across campus. And when she first got there, I used to go there at lunchtime. And, you know, anyway, her educator, Sarah, had rang me that day at about 11 o'clock saying that Josie was uncharacteristically clumsy. And on our drive into work that morning, she didn't really want to engage with our usual singing of songs or you know, talking, she was very quiet. And, and my son, George, had, had a virus early in the week and I thought, well, maybe she's got the virus and she's not feeling so well. And so given that she had been quiet and Sarah had rang me and said that she's uncharacteristically clumsy, I quickly packed up and, and ran across campus and got her and took her home, tried to give her some lunch and she didn't eat much. And then I thought, well, she should have an afternoon sleep. And when we walked down the hallway, she couldn't walk straight. She was bashing into the walls and, and I thought, wow, she's really tired. 
So I lay with her. She went to sleep. And the next morning, it was Saturday, my father's birthday, 17th of February. I'd spoken to Phoebe about going into work really early because I had to I had to write some grants. So I got up at six and went into work. And Phoebe rang me at nine and said, look, Josie's refusing to walk. I'm really worried about her. I'm going to take her into the John Hunter emergency. And we were living with my parents-in-law at that time because our, our house was being renovated in, in Dudley. And my father-in-law is just retired general practitioner. Uh, my wife's also a general practitioner these days. And um, he was equally worried. And so I rendezvoused with them at the John Hunter Children's Hospital emergency department. And they were very worried about her. Her neurological symptoms were, were very worrying. And fortunately, that day, there was a senior pediatric neurologist on that day. And he shared in Phoebe's and Chris's worry straight away and, and ordered her for an MRI, an image of her brain, under a general anaesthetic that Saturday afternoon. And so she had her first GA. We, Phoebe and I, were waiting for her to come out outside the surgical recovery. And we waited for what felt like a lifetime. And, and then Finally, out, out of the, the doors came the consultant neurologist who had ordered the MRI accompanied by the head of pediatric oncology, who was a colleague of both mine and Phoebe. Phoebe had trained under him when she was doing her pediatric um, training. And, and we went into his office and he showed us uh, the mass of diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, which is a, a tumor that's localized at the top of the spine, but just in the middle of the brain. And it was huge. It's hard to imagine. It was it was so big at diagnosis, and and Phoebe and I didn't really know too much about DIPG. It was this kind of silent monster, and we were told that that there wasn't any treatment other than palliative radiotherapy, and so you know that was quite a shock, and it, it really hit my father-in-law very hard, instantaneously. You know, I suppose my defence mechanisms kicked in. And, you know, I just got motivated. You know, I was on a call to the world's best the next day, two in the morning, you know, and she was this amazing clinician scientist from Stanford University, you know, had sent her DIBG tumours that she was growing in her lab to mine the next week. And, and I was determined to, to figure out a way to try and save, well, at least prolong Josie's survival. Because during that meeting that I had with this professor of paediatric oncology from Stanford, she said, look, we've just developed a treatment. It's cured these m mice with DIPG and we're, we're about to start a clinical trial. So my goal was just to do all I could to buy time for her until the trial came to Australia. And I talked to the clinical team. This is obviously a little bit further down the track. And they said, yeah, well, we're trying to get that, that trial going. This is probably March now. And he said, look, we're hoping to get it open by January. So my goal was, you know, do all we could. So, yeah, Josie was diagnosed with, with diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, brainstem glioma, 17th of February, when she was just before she turned three in, in the April. And, you know, it's, it's just a tragic, horrible journey for these children and their families. You know, she had biopsy. You know, trying to do surgery in the middle of the brain is really hard, really challenging. So you can't take the tumour out, but you can take a little bit of it to do genomics and proteomics on, which is what I do. That's given us a little bit more information about the disease over the last 10 years. Actually, I've just come back from a conference in Perth, which is the Australian New Zealand Childhood Hematology and Oncology Group annual scientific meeting. And at the meeting, they'd invited the Canadian clinician scientists that discovered the mutation that causes DIPG, which so I had three days of just this awesome intellectual camaraderie with this amazing clinician scientist from Canada, Nada Jabato. And it was just incredible. You know, she obviously knows my story. She worries about me. She's a very caring lady. But she, you know, to be able to hang out with someone that understands the science even better than I do was just a, a, an absolute privilege. You know, DIPG is this, this tumor that's caused by one mutation in the cells of the brainstem. And it probably happens very early post-fertilization during the formation of the embryo. It's a really interesting disease, really challenging disease because we can't take it out. And of course, these tumors are protected in the brainstem by the body's natural protection system, which is called the blood-brain barrier. And by design, this blood-brain barrier is, is designed to stop toxins, chemo, and infections, immune system, from getting into the brain so that we don't get, you know, tragic neurological effects that can happen. If you get an infection in the brain, it's, it's very hard to, to get on top of it and it can be catastrophic very quickly. So to have a tumour growing in the brainstem 
rapidly is uniformly a death sentence and kids pass away between nine and 11 months after diagnosis and the only thing they get is radiation and they get six weeks of it continuously every day and for the young kids that can't lay still in an accelerometer which is where the radiation is given you have to have a general anesthetic and so that's every day for six weeks and i don't know if many of your audience have had a ga but a ga is like waking up after a bad hangover every day and you have to fast, you know, six hours before. And so for a child, you're not giving them any food from about seven o'clock at night. And they're not eating again until about two in the afternoon. And they're on high dose steroids because the steroids are used to try and reduce the inflammation or the brain swelling that's happening simultaneously by a tumor that's growing in the brainstem. And that can be absolutely lethal. And the first thing that happens when a child is diagnosed with DIPG or any real aggressive brain tumor is to be given high dose steroids. And in front of your eyes, you have this beautiful child who you've nurtured and cared for, who's just like you, determined, sassy, you know, argumentative, turn into, a, you know, this out of person through being given these huge doses of steroids to try and reduce the inflammation in the brain. And then you see these, this transformation of a child who just becomes this screaming wreck. And it's all because you've given it all these steroids, but those steroids are absolutely necessary because without the tumour would cause so much inflammation that it would cut off all the vital signals that keep our heart beating and our, our lungs able to respirate. So it's really challenging and you have to learn to deal with that very quickly. And I think, you know, when I think back to those times and I reflect on, on the map of today, I think, you know, it really kind of affected me. I, I think we were so patient with everything that happened. And of course, all parents are, but I think I've lost so much patience in my, my personality and and I've noticed this before. This isn't a reflection I'm having right now, but, you know, I really kind of feel guilty now because I don't have the same amount of patience that I had for everything that Josie did or with, you know, the other three children. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I can even reflect on this morning trying to get out of the house, probably not being patient enough with my daughter who was refusing to have breakfast and to get ready for school. You know, I, I should have just talked it out with her instead of that if you don't get ready and get in the car, you can get your own way to school. You know, those kind of parental challenges. But I've kind of lost that patience and I, I, I need to work on my myself to try and get them back for them and not to be selfish and, and, you know, to have given Josie everything and them not enough. My heart is bleeding, honestly, Matt, as you say that. Like, I just want to jump through the screen and give you a cuddle for so many reasons. But one is like patience goes out the window as a parent full stop. But the amount, like when you compare your patience now to what you needed to have in a moment where you were trying to fight for your child's life, like you can't compare those two. They can't stand next to each other. You know, everyday patience as a parent is not the same as fighting for someone's life and the patience that you need in that moment. It can't be the same. It's not meant to be. Jessie's gone now and that's, you know, that's got nothing to do with the other children she's a big part of our life and we talk about it every day and right now it's a blue moon and Josie loved the moon I'm looking forward to getting home tonight so the kids can see the blue moon it rained last night you know Josie wanted to be an astronaut she wanted to be an astronaut in a rainbow rocket I suppose all of these kind of astrological alignments with the IPG are quite interesting because of course Neil Armstrong's daughter Muffy was diagnosed with DIPG in 1962. Didn't know that. Yeah, and she received the same treatment the kids get today, which is just a travesty. It's a shock. Isn't it? Like my god. That's... That is an absolute oh. joke. And so a couple of weeks ago, some amazing Australian families who either had lost their beautiful children to this monster or one of them who's still in the fight and a young lady who's a beautiful nine-year-old nowadays is on the treatments that I designed for Josie and she's been on those drugs now for two years. Wow. You know, it makes me so nervous. And But for her to come to Canberra and help us appeal to the government to do something about this, my charity's raised three times more for DIPG research than the federal government's funded. You know, it's ridiculous. Mums and dads, your audience. It's not our job. We pay taxes. We need to have, if, if Muffy Armstrong receives six weeks of radiation and then there's nothing more to 2023, it's, there's something wrong. We were able to do something about COVID when we poured money into it in eight months. Yeah. Not a brainstem glioma that's going to take your child uniformly. You know, this DIPG is, is responsible for more childhood deaths than any other disease. Every two weeks in Australia, a child's diagnosed with DIPG. Every day, two of them are diagnosed in the US. It's just 
and every one of those kids will face face the same prognosis, nine to eleven months. Yeah, it's just not right. The story, I suppose, for Josie was we were very fortunate to be part of the Zero Childhood Cancer Program. So she did have a biopsy and the sequencing for her genome or the mutations of the changes in the tumour that had given rise to the tumour were identified. And in Josie's tumour, so she seemed to have, you know, I do this for a living. This is my bread and butter. But she has she had an enrichment of one particular way that the, the, the cells were growing. There were many other changes, don't get me wrong, but there seemed to be an enrichment of one particular pathway. And so my, my first job was basically to look, look through the internet, look through the, all of the published research and find a drug that targeted that pathway. And I found one. I found a drug called GDC0084 in 2018, in, in May 2018. And this drug had just started clinical trials for adults with really bad brain tumors called glioblastomas, which is also a horrible monster. Patients with glioblastoma typically live for about 15 months after diagnosis. And so it's you know a little bit longer than kids, but still unacceptable. And this trial was testing this drug to figure out whether it was safe in humans and to figure out a dose, um, because you never know these things when you start these trials for patients that had failed all prior therapies. And it was kind of happening in real time. And I contacted the company and it was originally made by a huge American pharmaceutical company called Genentech and an, an Australian group of guys uh, from Sydney and Brisbane had bought the drug. I don't know that I should look into the backstory of that part, but I only, only came into it when they'd bought the drug. And I asked them whether I could test it in DIPG. And unfortunately, in my lab already, the Stanford University Professor Michelle Monji had sent the DIPGs that she was able to get growing in the lab to my lab and we were growing them. And then my postdoc, Ryan, was growing them and, and learning how to do it. And we found the drug GDC0084 and we tested it on DIPG cells. And we basically did a very simple thing to start with is we compared DIPG cells that we were growing compared to adult brain tumors that we could grow as well that we already had in the lab. And we discovered that DIPG cells were twice as sensitive, meaning you need half as much drug to stop the tumors from growing. That was exciting in the first instance, and we shared that back with the company. And the company found a, a group of researchers or clinicians that were going to host a trial, and they started a trial six months later for that drug in children in Memphis at, at St. Jude Children's Hospital just to test what the dose is that kids could receive because, again, it's different between adults and children, uh, and they were working on that. But that, that hadn't started at this stage. And, and given that Josie had so many changes in her DNA of that tumour, I knew that one drug was not going to buy us much time. And so looking at other changes in the tumour, we, we identified another therapy. We did a huge amount of testing in the laboratory. And then when Josie failed radiotherapy, I had contacted both pharmaceutical companies and they'd given me compassionate access to give to Josie, not just for research. And then in, in the start of November 2018, about six and a half months after diagnosis, she became the first child worldwide to receive one, GDC0084, and two, the combination of GDC0084 and, and another drug called Vandatinib, which is used in other tumours. And although we were very worried about toxicity and the unknowns, it didn't show any side effects, fortunately, and it stopped the tumour for growing. And she, during that time, she started to regain some of her neurological function. She learned to walk much better. She learned to swim in our pool. She had a one and only dance concert, which was organized by one of my PhD students called Dance DIPG. She had a little bit of help from her cousins because she still had complete almost loss of function of her whole right side because the tumor was growing left, stopping the right working. We had a magical Christmas. We had all of our family come. She got so well that I came back to work for December and started writing grants to keep the research going because I didn't stop doing the research. You just pared back all of the extra things you've got to do as, a, as an academic, and I just tried to focus on my PhD students and honours students. And throughout that year, my honours student, Evie Jackson, was working on another drug that was meant to work in DIPG, but no one had actually studied it at all. So she'd spent the whole year working on that. And so, again, the combination of the one that we discovered for Josie worked really nicely and stopped the tumour growing for three and a half months. And so, so now she was 13 months post-diagnosis. And unfortunately, of course, the tumour come back like it always does. And in the lab, we'd been working on another combination of therapies. And that, that therapy, that combination of therapies was given to Josie for the next 46 weeks and she lived for almost two years with the disease, but receiving these combinations of therapies. And the last combination of therapies that Josie received, which is GDC0084, which I discovered, which is now called Paxalicid, was combined with another drug called Dordavibrone. And now, as of this day, I think 140 children worldwide have received that combinations of therapies 
on the clinical trial conditions, even more so prior due to compassionate access and with a number of children that have been alive for more than two years now. And of course, some that had not responded whatsoever and have passed away quite rapidly. And so highlighting how much work we have to do still to to figure out how we treat these kids. As I'm listening to you, there's so much running through my head, but the thing that's sitting there the most is just how complicated the grief must have been because here you are as a lead researcher working on saving potentially thousands of lives, but at the same time your daughter is right in front of you and you don't know if you're going to even see her next year. You know, like I can't even, as you're talking, I can't even process that. No, I mean when the disease came back um, in October of 2018, I remember putting a tweet out just one more Christmas and she made, you know, she started to comment and it worked, stabilised the growth of the tumour and then, you know, she almost made it to the next Christmas, but not quite, and passed away on the 14th of December in between the other two children's birthdays. And during this, <laughs> I didn't even mention that, but, you know, just before Christmas in 2018, we had another child, Harriet, popped up. So Josie passed away a few days after Harriet's first birthday and a few days before George's third birthday. December's a bit of a, a bittersweet month, I suppose. It's busy and, and tragic and happy and yeah, I think Phoebe and I decided that December's a month we just go away in the caravan and, and spend time with, yeah. with the kids and try and shut out all the noise. Because I can imagine, Matt, how challenging it is to have more children on the ground when you lose a child, like, you know, to still need to be a parent when you've lost a child and you're grieving as a parent. Like I can't even be, oh, like I can't even put words around that. I will say that I'm... Um, we had another child six months after Jesse passed away, Henry, or I call him Henri, but I'm very thankful for that because I, I know some families or amazing people who have lost their only child to DIPG and it's hard, but I can't imagine how hard it is when you don't have a purpose. Well, you you know, when you don't have something else to care for and, and to, to love and, and to hold and to remind you of Josie, but also to you know be unique in their own way. Of course, they all are. But, you know, my, my heart goes out to, to all of those families that, that, that are in that situation where they've lost their only child to this terrible monster. And unfortunately, I know a few you know, and they're amazing people, but I worry about them. None of it is okay, you know, none of this. And as you keep using the word monster, it's so true, isn't it? Like it just comes into your life and it eats it up and then it just walks away, you know, like it's just all-consuming, I can imagine. Yeah, it is. It, is it, it destroys everything. I'm wondering now... Because it's it's only a heartbeat after. Like we're talking probably, is it five years since diagnosis? Yeah, yeah. And, Three um, years since she's yeah, passed it, away. Yeah, it's almost six years now. Yeah, February 24 will be six years. Yeah, it's not long. It's not long. And to think that you've been able to stay in the research world fighting for everyone else that's coming through the ranks after you to have a legacy there that's going to change lives for the rest, the rest of the time that people are on this universe is just truly incredible and inspirational. But... I just, I don't know, my heart goes out to you as a dad. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard. And my colleague from Canada was quite worried about me as well. But if we didn't have some clues that what we were doing was helpful, I probably would have run away from it as well and done something else. I'm sure I can do other things. But we do have evidence that what we're doing is somewhere near the right track. And I think Josie would want me to do it. She was my biggest supporter, you know. I remember taking her to the beach. She was unwell. We decided to go down the bush track with George and her. And, of course, you know, little kids refuse to walk, and it's quite a walk back up the track. So I had both of them, one on the front, one on the back. Josie was in the carrier, and I was just carrying George. And I remember Josie, she, just before she lost the ability to speak, would say, come on, Daddy, you can do it. You can do it. Keep going. Like always this little supporter. So she would be saying, and she does, come on, Dad, you can do it. And it's challenging, and I suppose the urgency of it is never lost with me because I'm always travelling the journey with the families in real time. So we can never work hard enough or quick enough. Unfortunately, these things take time. Yeah, and I think you know when we rush things too much, bad things happen. And so you know, it, it's important for us to do the best possible work we can, but as quickly as we can, but also. For me now to step back and, and because of the experiences I've had over these six years to understand what the consequences are of going too quickly and, and that, that's something I'm learning more recently 
and I'm hoping that, you know, through my experiences, I can keep directing the research, but, but also understanding all of the global implications of everything we do, not just in the lab, but in patients and in the clinic and for families. So it's, it's, it's kind of Jesse's passed all of this knowledge on to me and it'd be a tragic waste for it to go out the door. You know, I don't want to be having these conversations in another 10, 20 years where we're still left with radiotherapy. You know, we're still left with Muffy's treatment, you know, Josie's and Muffy's treatment. You know, it's just not acceptable. So it's incumbent on me to continue and, and to, to look after myself and my family, to continue to advocate that the government does something about it, not just the, the supporters of Run DIPG and, and the other amazing DIPG charities in Australia and America, and we do something about it. And it's that, you know, when we opened this conversation, we talked about your determination, your discipline and your drive, and that is why you are absolutely the right person for the job, but far out it's not going to be easy. And I can see that as you're talking and I can see it in your eyes and, you know, I just wish it wasn't your journey to take, but I can't imagine anyone else being able to step into it with everything that you've had in your life has been building to this moment. You know, you have all the research knowledge, all the characteristic traits, all the life experience, which freaking sucks that you had to go through it you know but I do like as you stand there there's a part of me that thinks you are the man for the job yeah it's almost meant to be do you have a message for your other children good question um, <laughs> I give them many messages every day <laughs> I suppose if I, I think about a holistic message not just a message from for my children but I think contributing to your community is, is really important obviously doing the right things in your life to to provide yourself with the opportunities to do something great but also to contribute to your community is a really important thing. I suppose I've always kind of done that in terms of, you know, in the military, contributing to my community, surf life saving. You know, those kind of little things are really important and they can be very enjoyable and they're very fulfilling. But to thinking thinking about things other than yourself I think is a really important thing. Sharing your time sharing your experiences, sharing your knowledge with everyone you can that, you know, when you when you are sharing and caring, everyone else is happier. And I suppose for us as a family, and I and if I think specifically back to my children, you know, they share the grief of Josie, particularly my son George, who really only realized what had happened at Josie's funeral when she was in a casket in the front. He was sitting in my lap in the front row and it all kind of clicked for him that she was lying in the casket and he screamed out, Jose! Watch that. So for him, things are very sensitive, you know. In our house, we can't kill a cockroach. <laughs> we can't kill it. can't kill it. The cockroaches have to go in the bin so they can go to where cockroaches at parties at the tip. <laughs> That. Oh my god! That's why you have no patience, Matt. <laughs> I love that. So you know, for him, he's a sensitive soul. Mm. It's about us protecting him so that he doesn't lose that, but also not being coming vulnerable in society, yeah. which can be very harsh. So you know, I suppose the message is: be sharing and caring, give to your community, but also be resilient. Resilience is really important. You can do a lot of things when you're resilient. If you let the world control what happens to you personally, and it'll try to, you won't get very far or you won't reach your potential. So those two two messages are important, contributing to community, but being resilient while you're doing it. And Matt, it's really important that we spend some time having a chat about how our listeners can help because you have not come on here today. You know, I do not want to take you through that whole story and trudge it all up because I know there are things we can do to help. I know that every single person that's listening to this episode right now could do one thing. If they were going to do one thing, what could that be? Well, I suppose if they're given the opportunity to talk to their elected members, state or federal, and and to say, you know, there is a disease that faces our kids that takes one quarter of all deaths from cancer that has no treatment you know getting the government to contribute to this is a first part supporting the research what we need to do is attract the world's greatest minds to take on the world's biggest medical challenge that's what we need i just do my best there's there's much smarter people around than i am if we can encourage them to come and work in brain tumors or kids cancer or you know research in general then we're going to get rid of these things we're going to be able to manage them quite effectively and, and, and imagine 
you know, the contribution that these kids will make. Because, you know, I know childhood acute lymphoblastic leukemia sufferers who have all become doctors because they spent time in hospital when they were unwell. So the, the return on investment is huge. Not only that, you know, you're saving families from destruction. You know, families disintegrate. They, do. they absolutely do, they do because what they watch their kid go through, you know, it, it's hard to, to disentangle what you've experienced when you look at your partner again, you know. You've gone through it with them, their mum or their dad. In some ways, people want someone to blame. And so it's hard to separate all of those things and keep it together. I'm just so very fortunate that my wife is so pragmatic, caring, loving. You know, she does this for a, a job. She cares for her community. But she's tolerated, you know, this mission, supported this mission and, and still finds a way to love this old elephant. <laughs> And so I'm, I'm extremely thankful for her. And, of course, you know, my, my family has been huge in setting up the charity that I'm a director of but in no means run anymore, which is great, called Run DIPG, which is which has raised, sponsored more than $2 million worth of research but underpins international clinical trials. And without Run DIPG and the support of our community who have, who have all built this charity from nothing, we wouldn't have this clinical trial that's open in 36 hospitals around the world, you know, giving at least – some families, some hope that there's something, you know, when we were diagnosed to be told that there wasn't any treatments or, or really any clinical trial. There was one clinical trial, actually, that we were meant to go on, but because Josie didn't respond to radiation like they required, she was off the trial before we even started. You just mentioned that run DIPG. There is actually a run, isn't there? Like that's something else that everyone could do is they could come and participate. Yeah, I mean, we have an actual event. It's the 24th of September on the Fernley track. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, but, you know, we, we've been doing this for a few years now and because of COVID, we, we also do it virtually. So if you go to, to rundipg.org and look at run for run DIPG, if you're anywhere in the world you can, on that day, and that day is, is selected because the first year that we ran it, the 26th of September is Australian Childhood Brain Cancer Awareness Day. And so it happened to fall on a Sunday where we had the first run for run DIPG. And so we, now we try and do it on a Sunday as close to the 26th as possible because of the 26th isn't possible every year. And, you know, we had COVID for those first two years and we had people running in Boston and Sydney and Melbourne and everywhere, but we also have a run ourselves on the Fernley track, which starts at Lyle Oval in Redhead. And there's a 5K run, a 21K run and a full marathon, which of course I do. Of course you do. You, you just go and do a casual marathon. <laughs> just to torture myself. Oh my God. Run to Aberdeen started because when Josie was having radiotherapy, we were in Sydney at Sydney Children's Hospital. She had uh, a central line put into her chest to administer the general anaesthetic and things like that. And it got contaminated with bacteria. So it got infected, as we call it. And that's very bad. And it happened within the first few times we accessed her port, this little valve, which lets chemo into the, into the body without having to give her a needle each time. Because she had to have it every day, right? For six weeks. And so public hospital, only one parent could stay. And so Josie would choose um, who would stay. And for the first three nights of a seven-night stay, um, she chose mummy. I'd stay until about nine o'clock. And I was staying in accommodation in Roselle across the city. This is probably about a month now after the diagnosis. I just felt such internal sorrow. It was just this amazing feeling. It was just, I couldn't shake it. I couldn't really do anything but feel sorrow. It was just this horrible feeling. And so I pulled over, you know, it's, it's late next to Hyde Park or is it Centennial Park in Ramwick, the big park. And I got out and I just started to run and I did one lap that night. And then the next day went in for radiotherapy, you know, into the hospital at seven for access to port and see if the girls are okay, go through the journey again. She's faster than, you know, coming out of surgical recovery, starving and distressed and alone. Stay in the hospital with her for the rest of the day, try and make it as fun as possible. And then again, she chose mum again the second night. So I pulled over at the same place I did the night before and I did two laps and it started to rain and I hadn't done any running really for a while and it started to hurt and for that for that time I was feeling pain physical pain rather than emotional pain and it kind of felt great but then I just started running every day doing radiotherapy just finding time to run and it went from you know 4Ks to 8Ks to 14Ks and it just kept going and then I was in Josie selected me to be to stay with her uh, over the weekend. And a friend of mine from Adelaide 
who I'd been on the submarines with, Jason Lehman, who was a firefighter in Clare, beautiful part of the world in South Australia, rang and said, you know what, we had a chat and I'm in the kitchen. He said, what can we do? And I said, Jason, I think I'm going to run a marathon and raise awareness of this thing and, and, and see if I can raise some money to fund the research that we've just started to do in the lab. Because so I've got to fund these salaries and it's expensive. He goes, yeah, I'll do it. I'll train too and we'll try and do Sydney. We'll do Sydney in, in September. And I said, okay, great. So we got home after radiotherapy. Josie had continued to do poorly throughout radiotherapy. Actually, the last week of radiotherapy, she was vomiting before every general. And that means pretty much one thing in DIPG that the tumor is still growing. Anyway, we got back to Newcastle and she continued to do very poorly. And we had another MRI and the tumor was just a mess, horrible mess. Anyway, I was sitting on the couch and we'd started this charity and there was a few more people getting on board. And we had the Lake Macquarie run coming up, but we didn't. We needed a name. And my wife's incredibly intelligent and witty. And, you know, Run DMC, Run DIPG came out from that. And it's funny, actually, because DIPG has now been renamed as of last year to Diffuse Midline Glioma, so DMG. So it's almost Run DMG. But it, almost, Yeah, yes. we, I think it, we would get sued if we changed it from DIPG to <laughs> Run DMG. So that started and, and you know, I got up it four o'clock every morning and just started running and I got I lost I don't know eight kilos and I thought well I've got to qualify for Boston and to qualify for Boston you've got to run under three hours and ten minutes for a marathon and I ran the half marathon at the Lake Macquarie and I, I ran in 90 96 minutes so I was the training was going well and the last week I kind of had this sore hip going on and then I got to the marathon I met up with everyone for the race I started running and about five k's in I had this horrible clicking sound in my hip every step was this click 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 and I kept going I kept going and then I just couldn't I literally couldn't I literally couldn't stand at about six and a half seven k's and it was just the most devastating thing again the outlet that I had which was to cause myself physical pain had caused me really bad physical pain and then the thought process is I'm not going to be able to finish this and I've got all these people running with me and the fact is now I've got six and a half k's to walk back to the start line to get home (laughs) None of this is good. Like there's nothing about this situation that's making me feel okay right now. And I remember getting to the start finish line or finish line and um, seeing all these wonderful people get over the line and my great mate Jason who had run an incredible marathon and I think he still claims that he's got a faster marathon than I do. He said, (laughs) where were you? I said, I couldn't. couldn't." (laughs) I was so fast. I didn't see you. (laughs) (laughs) And I I couldn't finish. And it was, and he was, you know, he put himself absolutely through hell to get there. And I felt, oh God, another, another huge insult to the heart and to the soul. But fortunately, I'm an elephant and I've got thick skin. And yeah, he stayed on board as a director of the charity for the next two and a half years and, and has only recently stepped aside to let some new blood on. And I'm forever thankful for his role in getting run down for G from an idea off to this awesome charity. Oh, and finishing that race, Jason. Yeah. Shout out to you for finishing that race because it's what you needed to see, Matt. And nothing like a bit of just rubbing salt on the wound, totally. you know, just a little <laughs> bit faster than you. Like well, get you at a true. time where you're so, feeling I, weak. I don't know. I ran the Gold Coast Marathon a couple of weeks ago. And I think I've, I've beat his time, but it is arguing that. This is international. So, you know, now it's been spoken, it's actually fact. Yeah. Well, I, th- I say to you, Jason Lehman, if you're listening to this, get your body sorted and then we'll duel it out in the next one. <laughs> Oh, Matt, I I don't have words for today. I really don't. This is just I wish there was more we could do and you've definitely mentioned some things and I'm also going to talk about that and put it all in the show notes because when we hear a story that touches our heart, take action. Do one thing, just one thing. If we all do one thing off this conversation, we may save a life. We may save a 100. We may save a 1,000. So please, please just take action in some capacity, whatever that is. Jump on the website, have a look, come and book in for the run. You know, if anyone needs a running plan, reach out to me, I'll give it to you. Like whatever, like let's let's get behind yeah, this great. because it's such an important cause. And Matt, I just, for you to get on and speak about it time and time again, it never gets easier. No, it doesn't. I wish it did. Yeah, it doesn't. Matt, I I love to finish every podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. I think the thing that makes me laugh even today is my wife, Phoebe. She has this really weird sense of humour where she likes to see people get hurt. (laughs) Like, for example, last night. Yes, you better clarify this. I feel like this is (laughs) Phoebe, if you're listening. (laughs) She belly laughs. She dead set belly laughs uncontrollably and it's the most 
beautiful sound in the world, particularly for us. And she's watching on her phone. Her sister has the same sense of humour, Alice, and they're watching a mum on a flying fox. So this mum's flying on a flying fox like a kid's playground and it hits the end and comes back and there's three five-year-old children, six-year-old children waiting for their turn and the mum comes back and bashes into all three children and knocks them over like ten pins and Phoebe just laughs and laughs and laughs and laughs and laughs and watches it over and over again. The kids aren't hurt at all, but just that kind of sense of humor. And to, to hear her laugh makes me laugh. And it also makes me feel like calling docs. <laughs> Do you know what? To have a piece of joy, even for a moment. No, I agree. After what you have been through, like what a sound. No, it is, it is amazing. And she's always been so happy uh, throughout you know, our courtship of however long it is, 16 years. But, you know, of course, everything that she's been through has kind of taken that away. So to even hear that last night makes me so much happier that, you know, she's trying to find a way that there's there's new life in her new world that looks completely different to the other one we were loving. So it makes me happy just to see that. Thank you so much, Matt, for giving up your time today and for sticking it out with that tech because it would have been easier today, I guarantee, for both of us to be like, nope, well, let's just push it back another three months, you know, but this is not a story that could wait another three months. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me. And thanks for passing on the important messages. We can all do a little bit. And I appreciate all those that have done so much already. And I look forward to discussing the, any of these things with you. And if you see me running, and I do run, I look funny when I run. Uh, I'm like an injured gazelle. Please toot or wave. It just keeps me going that little bit further. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Challenges That Change Us. I hope you've been as moved as I have been by today's conversation with Matt. His dedication to paediatric cancer research and his resilience in the face of unimaginable personal loss serves as a powerful reminder of the positive impact that one person can have on this world. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you that the journey of change and growth never ends. We all face challenges, big and small, And it's how we navigate them that defines us. So take these lessons and inspiration that you've gained from today's episode and apply them in your own life. Be the change you want to see in the world. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or sharing it with your family and friends. Your support helps us continue bringing these meaningful conversations and allows us to reach even more people who can benefit from these stories. Remember, we're here every Monday with new episodes, each one designed to talk through human stories and human spirit, resilience, and and the lessons that we have gained and how we navigated some of those challenges. If you need someone to talk to or a listening ear, don't hesitate to reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thank you for being part of this journey. Until next week, keep facing your challenges with courage And remember, it's the challenge that changes us. Share this story, leave a review, and together, let's spread the message of hope and resilience far and wide. Thank you, everyone, for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.